Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Writer's Buzz is a series of free events that bring together Colorado's writers, readers, and artistic community. Hosted in Lighthouse's Grotto, the format is ever-changing but always fun, encompassing readings, talks, special seminars, and collaborations across disciplines. At the February 2013 Writer's Buzz, you're writing education to MFA or not to MFA. Four panelists discussed in front of an eager-to-learn audience his or her unique writer's education. Their journeys ranged from the School of Hard Knocks to Doctorate. This all-star panel featured Lighthouse board member and fiction writer Gary Schonbacher, Crossing Purgatory, and Colorado Book Award winner and Penn Hemingway finalist Migration Patterns, poet Elisa Gaber, MFA, The French Exit, novelist Carlene Bryce, Orange Mint and Honey, and Children of the Water, and poet and fiction writer Seth Brady Tucker, MA, PhD, Mormon Boy. Welcome. My name is Dan Manzanares. I'm the... Hi. Uh, hi. You're messing up the flow. I'm just kidding. There is no flow. Uh, welcome to the Writer's Buzz. Uh, you're writing education to MFA or not to MFA. Um, the panel... Lovely panel in front of you. Uh, first panelist, Gary Schonbacher. If you'd like to, there's Gary. Uh, Gary Schonbacher was born in the Midwest, raised in the Southeast, and for decades has lived in Colorado. He holds degrees in economics from Randolph Macon College. Macon? All right. Old Dominion University and the University of Colorado. His short story collection, Migration Patterns, received a Penn Hemingway Honorable Mention for Distinguished First Works of Fiction and won the Colorado Book Award and the High Plains First Book Award. His novel, Crossing Purgatory, is scheduled for release in June from Pegasus Books. Carlene Bryce. There's Carlene. All right. Carlene is author of nonfiction and fiction. Her most recent works are the novels Children of the Waters and Orange Mint and Honey, the latter of which was made into the lifetime movie Sins of the Mother. Yeah. She has a Bachelor of Science degree, which comes in handy when writing fiction and dealing with the business side of publishing. No, I have a BS degree. BS degree. She has a... Oh. She <laughs> killed it. Damn it. There's always one. There's always one. Uh, hopefully that's the only one. Um, Elisa Gabbert, who just drank some wine... Um, is the author of The French Exit, published by Birds LLC in 2010, and The Self-Unstable, a collection of prose poems forthcoming from Black Ocean in fall 2013. Yeah. As well as several chapbooks. She holds degrees from Rice University in Houston, Texas, and Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, that was the MFA, right? Yep. Cool. Um when she's not writing poetry, she's probably blogging, tweeting, drinking wine, buying perfume, or making salsa. <laughs> the dance, dancing. not the dip. Or dancing the lambada. Oh. 
All right, Seth Tucker. Seth. Seth Tucker has degrees in creative writing and English literature from San Francisco State University, BA, Northern Arizona University, MA, and from top-ranked Florida State University, PhD. (laughs) D. His book, Mormon Boy, won the 2011 Elixir Press Poetry Prize and was released in 2012. He is a breadloaf Huck Smith scholar and has poetry and fiction forthcoming in the Iowa Review, Asheville Poetry Review, Crab Orchard Review, and other fine publications. Seth is originally from Lander. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Seth is originally from Lander, Wyoming, and is therefore a master of the art of baling hay, branding cattle, and jumping from bridges. <laughs> Just like everybody else from up there. His favorite drink is the Manhattan, but he will take what he can get. (laughs) Just like everybody else from up there. That last line was me. All right. Now, let's give a warm welcome to this evening's mediator, moderator, MFA-er. Is that enough? I think she got her MFA from Emerson. Okay. Lighthouse's program director, Andrea Dupree. Thanks, Dan. Ooh, wow. Wow, he's tall. Well, I'm just going to move that then. Um, a couple other things that I was told to mention. Number one is we've done this panel before. And um, we used to do it at the Tatter Cover Lodo. And I just remembered it used to be at 10 in the morning. And there would be like 5,000 people there. Maybe people don't think this is an exciting Saturday night thing to talk about. Uh, Or do do we think it's exciting? Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah, actually, I thought, right. Exactly. It's almost getting ready to snow. I, I know. I mean, people are risking life and limb to be here, and we appreciate it. Um, the other thing I was going to say is uh, Lauren Groff is coming in April, April 6th and 7th. If you haven't read her, she's amazing. She, her book, Arcadia, just got nominated for the L.A. Times Book Award with um, somebody you might have heard of, Michael Chabon and um, others. <laughs> Oh, you know, the one that keeps getting nominated for everything, The Long Walk, the Billy... Fountain. Yeah, the Ben Fountain, which he was a late bloomer, which I love about him. Late bloomer. Like Billy Ben... Yeah. Um, Anyway, so the thing about Lauren, though, is we had a think tank. We do have a think tank. And we were thinking, Arcadia, one of the premises of the novel is that there's this native-born kind of utopian kid who grows up never having had meat, you know, and never having... He, he grew up in Utopia. He was born there, and he grew up there. And then even after the Utopian community went, you know, everybody got arrested for drugs. Um, <laughs> it, spoiler alert, I should have said. Um, even after that, he still had never had meat or anything. And so we at the Think Tank um, said, well, wouldn't it be fun to have a vegan feast? Um, as part of the Lauren Groff visit. 
I don't know if I've sensed very much enthusiasm from Lighthouse <laughs> about <laughs> the vegan feast. So we might have a side of we might have a, a side of ham and chicken. I just want you to know. Um, okay, so for the panel, everybody here is gathered to glean your wisdom. The path to your success was paved by all the decisions you made about immersing yourself in this art, your creative education. First of all, could you briefly tell us what you did and, you know, what, what the good, good and, and less good <laughs> things are about the choices you made? And, and should we start with you since you're right here? Sure. Great. So um, uh, where do I start? I got an MFA right out of undergrad. Um, and the reason I did that is because it was 2002, and there was sort of a kind of mini recession going on. I don't know if any of you remember that. Um, but when my brother had graduated from college, like three years earlier, it was this like golden age of the tech bubble, and we went to the same college. Everybody he knew was just getting like consulting jobs right out of college for eighty thousand dollars a year, and um, and I was thinking like, oh, it doesn't even matter what I major in. Like I'm just so evidently smart. I'm going to get a great job and it's going to be awesome. And then, <laughs> and that didn't happen. And um, I, I actually graduated a semester early and started applying for jobs. And I literally like never even got one phone call. <laughs> like not even one. So um, luckily I also applied to some graduate schools. Um, and at the time I wasn't sure if I wanted to try to get an MFA or get a PhD in linguistics, which is what I studied as an undergrad. Um, and so I just kind of did the equivalent of a coin toss, and I applied to five linguistic schools and five MFA programs. And um, it wasn't really a coin toss. It was weighted because I got into all the linguistics programs, and I realized I don't want to go to any of those. <laughs> and I got into one <laughs> poetry program, and I decided to do that. Um, so... I guess I was just sick of actual schoolwork, and I was like, I just want to have fun and write for three years. And um, the, I would say that the, the biggest problem with the way that I approached it is um, I, I didn't research the schools enough, and I only applied to five or six or however many I applied to. And, you know, if I was going to advise someone what should you do when you're applying to graduate schools, I would say apply to, like, 20 or 30. I mean, you can use the same stuff for almost all of them, right? I mean, I know you have to pay a lot, but like... like $5,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, may, okay, so maybe not 20, but um, whatever your finances allow. But I, I would have applied to more programs because um, although Emerson ended up being a great experience for me, it was just kind of random. I, I just I went there because that's the school that I got into, and um, the the main shortcoming of it is that it there was very little funding. I got a little bit of funding, but not a lot. Um, I worked while I was in school, um, so I didn't you know go into enormous debt, but I did go into debt. Um, and Boston is an expensive city to live in, so it just it. it I was 22, you know, it wasn't as thought out as it could have been. Um, but probably my theme for the night, and I'll stop here and pass it on, will be that, you know, your MFA decision should, you should always be considering money. You shouldn't approach it from a, like, I don't care what it costs perspective <laughs> the way I did. <laughs> um, 
yes. But so I, I, I got an MFA. I finished it. It was great. Um, and I'll probably talk more about that as people ask questions. I don't want to get into it much now. But um, no regrets except for an asterisk <laughs> in regards to finances. And I'll, I'll come back to that. There's going to be a little theme here, I think. <laughs> I, uh, Wait, I, as in stand? Oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, sure. You're welcome. I, uh, the little theme is I went, I went to graduate school right out of undergraduate school because there was a recession going on and nobody was getting any jobs. Um, but I, unlike the MFA track, I uh, went to graduate school um, in economics and, and went – Got a couple of degrees and then went into business and worked for decades and um, eventually fell back on – I had this theory that when you turn 30, mid-30s, late-30s, you always look for – naturally for creative outlets, and I could do nothing. I mean I, I raised the – I raised the hood of my car, and it, it ends up costing me thousands. Of dollars. Um, three chords, same three chords of the guitar: G, A, E, C, C. F. F. I kind of screw up. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but I found that every once in a great while, I'd write a sentence that at least I enjoyed, even though no one else obviously did at the time. So I started um, taking up the craft of writing, and um, unlike others, my entire um, acquisition of craft came from the workshop environment, uh, and primarily from Lighthouse since before 2000, like 1999, I think, when we're, um, um, Mike and Andrew were meeting in a bus, uh, a loft, <laughs> uh, not in the bus station, but... <laughs> In, in a loft, in a loft, right across the street from the Greyhound station. That was Which that was time frame. Material. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it was material. Yeah, just trying to get into the place was oftentimes you know, the beginning of a story. So, um, so I'm a I'm a product of the um, of the workshop, and uh, and I'm sold on it. Uh, I think probably, um, and not to put words into. MFA's mouths and PhD's mouths. Um, I think realistically the learning curve is probably a little flatter in a workshop because unlike being just immersed in craft for a period of two years, um, it's more like taking courses here and there while you're working full-time over the course of, in my case, a decade. Um, But balance that with the fact that I got to take exactly what I – felt I needed to take, when I needed to take it. Um, gee, I took that creative writing uh, short story workshop. I think I'll take it again. And, oh, maybe I'll take it again uh, instead of moving on um, to uh, poetry. Sorry, I couldn't have done that. Um, uh, and and, and I, I found a community of writers, of course, struggling to do the same thing I was trying to do, and that community has lasted and grown and I think deepened over the course of a decade um, as compared to maybe having this intense relationship with your group of writers for a couple of years and then and then moving on into the real world. So I think there's uh, pluses and minuses to be said for both that we can talk about. But uh, just from my perspective, um, uh, I'm a 
product, the workshop, and, and, and it's worked out for me. Do I need to stand? I need to stand. Okay. <laughs> Writers are lazy, man. Um, lesson number one. Um, so I um, always loved books. I love to read. I always told stories. My grandmother still, my gra- I have a 91-year-old grandmother who can still tell the stories that I used to make up when I was a kid and stuff. And I always loved that, but I don't. I didn't have the confidence. I was the first person in, in my family to go to college, and I didn't have the confidence to really think that I could be a writer. That was, you know, something that other fancier people, not in Omaha, Nebraska, did. And so, what I came up with was that um, I was going to be Larry Tate when I grew up. Does anybody watch Bewitch? <laughs> and. I didn't even have the confidence to be Darren and be the creative. I was going to be the account person and be Larry Tate because I thought, I can do that. Anybody can be Larry Tate. So I went to, um, luckily, went to a college that happened to have a good journalism school and got a good journalism degree and worked in marketing and PR and stuff like that until um, 92 when my mother died very young and I was very young and it made me realize that, you know, life is short and... We don't know what's going to happen, and so if there's something that I wanted to do, I better start doing it. And I started um, writing um, essays and nonfiction stuff. And then in 2011, after 9-11 happened, um, I had another sort of wake-up call that, hey, this thing that you're living is not extended forever. (laughs) And if there's something you want to do, you should be doing it. And I was driving down Colorado Boulevard, and I was hearing this voice in my head, which, you know, I can share here, I'm assuming, (laughs) that I'm not the only one in this room who hears voices sometimes, and this person was talking about when she first moved to Denver and blah, 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 and I had always wanted to write a mother and daughter story. I had this very close, complicated relationship with my mom that, that I wanted to explore, and when I was hearing this person, I decided that's the mom in my story, and I went home and I wrote it down, and I got about 100 pages into it and got stuck, and that's where I kept getting stuck, and um, I had a friend who was friends with somebody who was taking a class here at Lighthouse, and so that's how I heard about Lighthouse, and I started workshopping in Bill Henderson's class, Um, and um, that's how I got started, and my novel got published, and then I wrote another one, which I did workshopped in the master class with Bill, and that one was published, and um, now I'm going to be teaching a class. (laughs) here at Lighthouse so that's my story wow I don't know if my story is interesting or if it's even going to help so I obviously grew up in Wyoming and there wasn't a a big uh, focus on education or reading or writing or reading or writing or any of that stuff. And so I joined the military and... Uh, can you hear me, by the way? Sure. Okay. Um, joined the military, uh, and I'd, I'd written some poems and some short stories in high school, you know. I think one of them was called Futility. <laughs> and it, 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 was, it was a poem. I should have brought it. It's pro- it probably would have been uh, a little bit ironic for the whole for everyone to experience that. 
But and, and it, I think it rhymed with futility. Like all the end stops, futility. Um, but I remember uh, just kind of. I was a big reader, um, but I was never a reader of literature. As I, you know, I I just burned through horror and science fiction and all that. And then I remember getting. We'd get these shipments of books in Iraq, Iraq, and I remember getting um, William Carlos Williams selected um, poems, and that was sort of a, you know I, I tell this sort of cliche story about finding poetry in a foxhole, you know, and um, and I get and it's kind of true I guess, but I, I really fell in love with the, with the form. Um, I'd always considered myself sort of a, a storyteller though. And there was no direction, really. It was just, I'm going to go to school on the GI Bill. Uh, there was this sort of thought that I owed, you know, the other soldiers around me some of that, that I should continue on with my education. And so I, I went to San Francisco only because I wanted to live in San Francisco. So I went to San Francisco State. Um, and had no idea uh, Maxine Cuman taught there, you know, why would I know that? You know, famous poet. Um, didn't take any, any advantage of any of that. Um, just because I was writing on my own for myself. You know? um, and then I went to northern Arizona because I wanted to live in Flagstaff. So I didn't even know who the professors were. were. Um, so there wasn't really a good plan until... I started looking at Florida State, and I started looking at uh, grad, uh, MFA and PhD programs, and I was so convinced I was going to get in, and I was excited about it, and I applied to Florida State, and it was, it was one of those top-ranked programs, but I really wanted to come here to Denver, and I got into Florida State, and I didn't get into Denver, and I just remember thinking, who wants to live in Tallahassee? I've had this great path where I get to live in cool places, and now I'm going to go live in Tallahassee. Um, and so for, so for me, the education was just kind of, uh, until the PhD, it hadn't been really thought out. And I hadn't made any plans for how I was going to pay for it. And don't do that. <laughs> because you would think a PhD uh, with poetry as one of the main focuses would pay a lot of money for you in the future. <laughs> and it's really where the money is. Um, <laughs> You'd be surprised to know that that is not always the case. So um, I think that's really it as far as my... I will say that graduate school, one of the, one of the positive things about it, uh, and one of the things I, lo- I love about Lighthouse is the people that you meet and the, and the community that you develop. And that's really what you get in grad school. It's just in a hyper-condensed version of that. Um, and so... For me, the grad school part was that I got to work with some brilliant, brilliant teachers and writers. Um, and that's, I think we'll talk more about that, but that's really my only advice is that if you want to have that experience, that's an easy way to do it. Uh, an easy way that's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars and a lot of misery, but is that enough? All right. That's a good start. <laughs> and since you brought up cash... I thought um, this would be a lovely segue. And then I do want people to raise their hands if they have questions. It's starting to feel warmer in here, isn't it? Or is it just me? Okay. Um, What, if anything, was your vision of a career? And have you um, modified 
that vision or had any um, epiphanies that we should know about. Um, given that art isn't always synonymous with career. Um, so any thoughts on that? And I don't mean to always pick on Elisa first if anybody else has thoughts on that. Other, okay, then it's going to you. <laughs> I, um, I, I did not go to grad school thinking I was going to teach, um, which I guess maybe is the exception. Um, I kind of just figured I'm, I can do anything after that that I could do with an English degree, which to me, again, was not teaching. It was just sort of like, whatever. Like, <laughs> like I knew how to copy edit. I assumed I would probably end up being an editor. And in fact, that is what I did when I got out of grad school. I ended up being a copy editor for four years. And now I'm a copywriter um, or a content marketing manager. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so... Do I think my degree helped with that? No, not really. It's like totally unrelated, but it didn't hurt me in any way. Um, and I do think it looks good when I do want to teach, like at Lighthouse or in Boston at Grub Street. Um, so it, it was more of a not hurting, but not necessarily helping type situation for me. Um, I wasn't, I honestly wasn't thinking too much about how is this going to advance my career. I just wanted to write poems. What was the question? I don't remember. Okay. About careers. 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 Um, do you want me to stand up? To also, okay. Um, yeah, in terms of writing, uh, no, I had no visions uh, coming out of undergraduate school. And like I mentioned, I pursued degrees in economics to work in the field and ended up working in the field, but not in, um, in academics. Um, there was a recession going on at the time when I finished graduate school, and that was the recurring theme. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the uh, academic jobs weren't all that um, forthcoming, So, and we didn't want to move. I mean, an academic career involves um, leapfrogging and jumping around all over the place, and we'd grown up, uh, my wife and I, either on the ocean or in the mountains, and didn't like the alternatives in between. So I settled down here in, in business in um, not using the degree to get a job, but not in the job, if you know what I mean. Um, and then, but really it was into my late 30s that I decided that um, that writing was something I wanted to pursue seriously. And, and, and then once you make the decision, uh, uh, you have to decide what's your best course to pursue it seriously? And, you know, in years past, I'm sure people have locked themselves away and um, and worked at the keyboards, at the typing keys, or at the uh, their legal pads and, and developed something. But for me, I didn't see... I, there's not enough years in a life for me to have developed that. So finding a place like this was um, uh, the outlet to, to really open things up. And that's when I started thinking uh, to write seriously. And then, in fact, did, thank goodness, because my wife. That's another thing. If you're a writer, have a spouse that makes money because yes. my, wife, <laughs> my wife continued to work. And I took early retirement and uh, for the past half decade or so been able to, to devote full time. Yeah, I wish somebody would have told me that a long time ago. I married a musician. I was the spouse with the money. 
And so that kind of uh, sucked for me, except it was, it's been really nice to have a spouse who understands this creative process and me locking myself in a room and walking around the house, you know, mumbling to myself and, and stuff like that. And, and traveling to do things with books and stuff. It's, so having a supportive spouse who can't support me financially but can support me in every other way has has made it worth it. Um, I my I I've been lucky in publishing. I um, have published books with Harper Collins, um, Beacon Press. My two novels. I got a two book deal with Random House and. Um, I, at that time, even though all the evidence and everybody with any common sense would tell you something like 5% of writers make their living writing, I thought, well, but it's Random House, and I got a two-book deal, and I quit my job. <laughs> the thing they tell you, like, don't, don't quit your day job, I quit my day job. And, um, and for the last six or seven years or whatever, I've been freelancing and living off credit cards, and now I'm looking for a day job again, and I'm interviewing and probably getting ready to go back to work. Um, and actually, one of the things that happened lately with publishing, um, you know, with the technolo- technological changes, with the economy and the recession and the fact that you know, people are buying 99-cent books on their Kindle or something somebody told me recently, and I don't know if anybody in here does this, but book clubs that if you're all on the same Kindle account, you can share, and there are book clubs that are like, I will buy the book, you know, and pay the two ninety nine or nine ninety nine or whatever, but if we're all on the same account, I can loan it to you. And so, like, you get a book club of 10 people who are paying for one book. But anyway... <laughs> That's affecting <laughs> how publishing is going. And so I know a lot of writers who have sort of readjusted their thinking about this business and how they're going to do it. Um, self-publishing has turned out to be, for a lot of people, way more um, viable and interesting and lucrative and easy to do um, and also, I know a lot of writers who have sort of gone back to, you know, they did like me because writers, you know, I don't want to have a, wants to have a job. So you quit your job and then, you know, the money runs out and you go, oh, shit, and you have to go back and get a job. And there's a lot of us who are doing that and writing on the side. And I think that's um, probably something that is going to be my next, my next phase for the next foreseeable future is what I'll be doing. So that's my career. So I really did forget the question. <laughs> um, uh, it's like I have a seven-second span of attention. That no, just, it's not. Like, yeah, education, okay. education to parlaying that into career, livelihood. Um, well, I, I'll tell you that I, I didn't have any idea that I was going to be a teacher. It never even occurred to me. I was the worst student um, I was a real asshole. Wait, don't say any of this out loud. Because <laughs> you, you teach her. No, I know. Uh, <laughs> I'm aware of that. <laughs> audience. Um, uh, but when I went to... Uh, the point was I was going to bring it back. Just can't, just can't let me just speak. 
anymore. Um, so uh, when I went to Northern Arizona and I got a graduate assistantship, I just thought I'd help grade or something like that. And so I literally showed up to the first day, no, was not prepared at all to teach, and they started talking about teaching. And basically, I, it only took me two hours to recognize that I would be teaching a class. <laughs> it still wasn't registering with me. And so, but the funny thing is, I just kind of slipped into it. I, I, my first love was always writing, but the second love was teaching. And now it's really a struggle for me to somehow pay attention to the thing that I love best. And um, sometimes that's really difficult as a teacher. Uh, the hours, the, the amount of emotional sort of uh, give and take that you have with your students. So for me, it was, uh, I love teaching. I'd rather write all the time um, and teach at Lighthouse. I'm talking about university teaching. Um, I am d- totally devoted to Lighthouse. Um, I will never, ever leave. So... Is that, is that, does that feel like a satisfactory <laughs> answer? <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> what was that last part? No, just kidding. Um, I want to open it up to the rest of you. Um, I have other questions, but if you have questions that you've been kind of sitting with, um, you can even just do kind of an auctioneer's like... Okay. Well. Um, so just oddly enough, on our random panel, none of you guys really planned on doing where, what you ended up doing necessarily from college, you know. And so I wanted to know if you could go back and do it all over, knowing now that you know you wanted to write or be a writer, what would you have changed or done differently? Really good question. Yeah. Did you guys hear the question? Okay. Did you hear? Yeah. Do we need to repeat it? What would we started out not realizing our paths would take us to writing, and if we had it to do over and could go back, what would we change? And for me, um, it's pretty obvious for me. It's build the toolbox, stuff your toolbox with every everything you can find laying around. Um, I didn't have a great training in grammar or, or literature, like. Seth, you know, I didn't read fine literature necessarily. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's three things you need to be the best writer you can be, and that is an overstuffed toolbox, um, the desire to read as much as you can, the desire to blow up your TV, um, <laughs> as my, one of my idols, John Prine, would say, and uh, and then to seat your seat and in, write uh, in for a couple decades before you have aspirations to put anything out there. There's always exceptions. You know, we're, an exception's visiting next month, who's on her what fourth or fifth book at 33 or. But but basically, you need to to write a lot. It, what I would do if I had it to do over again is is write a lot more than I did, read a ton lot ton more than I did and then try to uh, just learn all the craft I could at an early age and just build on it um, from grammar and vocabulary on up to usage and everything else you know lie lay <laughs> you know, uh, 
you know, all that stuff. <laughs> um, I think I, I think I probably would have gone for an MFA. I, I kind of miss out on that um, experience. And I also would have, you said, applied to more places. I, w- I applied to one college because my friends were going there. And, you know, it was, I went from Omaha, Nebraska to Lawrence, Kansas. I, I, I would have gone, I would have applied more places and gone somewhere. I, I would have moved to New York and lived out those last few beautiful days of print when I had a degree that would have done something, you know, but I'm still happy where I am, and I think that um, in a lot of ways, even though it wasn't a plan, it's still, I was still making choices that was leading me to the place I needed to be, and so, you know, it works. I don't know how much I'd change. I think uh, for me with writing, it was always about – so I, I, I actually had a job in, be- in between uh, where I was in sales, pharmaceutical sales. So really classy sort of <laughs> job that I chose. And so I, I made a good amount of money doing that, and I was at my most unhappy. I was miserable, and I wasn't writing. And I took the job thinking, okay, finish the dissertation – while I'm doing this, uh, make enough money to pay off some student loans, and everything's going to be fine. But what happened is, is that I find that, it, and maybe some of you would, would, would uh, recognize this, but the less busy or the less that my life required of me, the less writing I did. And so I'm busier now than I've ever been, but I actually write more than I ever have. And so I would say, as far as the education is concerned, you can get it for free just by reading great books and learning how to write and coming to Lighthouse and Which taking classes free. with that. <laughs> right. Close enough. Um, but it's really about... Uh, which path you're going to choose and how you choose that. And if you, if you love writing and it's something that's really important to you and you can't live without it, then you're halfway there. I mean, the rest of it doesn't really matter. Um, you can come up and have something to write on your CV, but for me it's always been, if I could change anything, I wish someone would have put a book in my hand when I was younger. You know, I wish someone would have recognized that I had a thirst for language that was unusual in, uh, with the kids around me and just gave me something cool to read that wasn't um, Stephen King, which, you know, still hey, hey, great. Hey, Stephen, King, Stephen King's great, but that's all I read. And I, I, I'd never seen a poem really until after I'd gotten into the military. So uh, that was a rambling answer, which most of my students recognize as pretty common with me. But... Can I, can I say one other yeah. thing, too? One of the things I want to say, we were talking upstairs in the, in the living room about, about writing and taking classes and whether or not to get, get an MFA. For me, I think what happens, and I can't speak for people who have gotten an MFA, but I think you teach yourself how to write no matter what avenue you take. You, you, know, you have to read. You have to learn. And no matter who's standing in front of you dispensing this wisdom or not, if it's just you with the book, you have to teach yourself how to, how to figure out how to tell the story you're trying to sell. And you have to tell. Huh. And you have to uh, figure that out 
each time too, which is kind of the bummer part because I thought you know once you figured it out, then it's like woo, and then then yeah, then the next time you go, I got to figure this one out. But it's it's it, a lot of it is you, and you're teaching yourself. So whether you're at Lighthouse or whether you're in a MFA program, it's going to be coming out of you anyway. I'll just quickly echo what some of my fellow panelists have said. I totally agree I would have read more when I was younger. Um, I can still read now, obviously, but (laughs) it's better to have done it in the past. Um, So, yeah, I don't, like, ever think, oh, I don't want to read because it's going to infect my voice and I won't be able to find my own voice. Like, that's so not true. And I actually think one of the most valuable things about taking workshops is not getting the feedback, but just seeing what your peers are doing. Because there's going to be someone in your class that you're going to be like, oh, damn, I wish I had written that. And you realize, like, oh, I can. (laughs) I can write whatever I want. (laughs) Like, I'm a god. Um, And that's amazing. (laughs) Um, The other thing is, again, yeah, I I would have applied to more schools. I, I do think that I still would have got an MFA if I had to do it all over again. But I would have applied to more places. Um, So... I would have had like a little bit more choice in terms of like, oh, which faculty do I want to work with? Um, again, which places offer the most money? I wasn't paying attention to that at all the first time around, and I regret that. Um, so yeah, and I also think that it's getting more and more competitive. Um, I, I know that when I applied, I had one other close friend in undergrad who was a poet, and um, he applied to about the roughly the same number of schools as I did, and he didn't get into any of them. And um, he ended up going to law school, and he probably won. <laughs> like, now he's a lawyer, and he's making money, and he can write he can still write poetry if he wants to. Um, but I, I mentored a student um, in Boston. I've mentioned Grub Street before. It's if none of you are from have been to Boston or are familiar with Boston, Grub Street is like it's a very similar model as Lighthouse. And um, I had a student there named Slobodanka, and she was this brilliant woman writing like from her Croatian past and she's so smart and so good and she actually was in sales she was working not pharmaceuticals but like selling medical equipment or something and she was like this top salesperson and making tons of money and writing on it she's just brilliant and I thought for sure I wrote her a recommendation letter and I thought for sure she was going to get in somewhere but she only ended up applying to five or six places because of the deadlines she had more planned but didn't get around to it and she didn't get in anywhere and I couldn't believe it I was really shocked um but I'm I I just I don't think it is because she had a weak writing sample at all I think it's just that it's a crapshoot there's so many people applying to this program so if you do decide to get an MFA please apply to at least 10 programs (laughs) but like is whatever you can scrape together the application fees yeah, for. Right. I would seriously say apply to like fifteen or twenty because you're just kind of playing the odds at some point. Um. That's that's a good point, and I guess that brings up a question. And I, I am also looking to see if anybody has their hands raised. Um, if it is that competitive to get an MFA, I mean, surely tens of thousands of people now have them. Tens of thousands. So, uh, so what? What do you get, like, as an artist and as a professional, for for doing it? For I mean, and and I do think the the numbers matter here. And I I was like you. I also have an MFA, um, and had no idea. They called and offered a scholarship, so I took it. 
and went and it was the opposite coast of where I lived and um and ended up being great right but I had no idea what I was doing and I had no plan I remember when teaching teaching writing as a class came up and everybody was trying to get into that class and trying to get these competitive positions of teaching came up I had this moment of reckoning and saying oh crap should I be trying to figure out a job um because I was I was editing a physics journal I was advising as part of my fellowship I was teaching too um so it all kind of came to me in a big kind of slap and I wonder Carlene said she wished she had gotten an MFA and I wonder I guess starting with you Carlene what did you what do you think you would have gotten from that I mean I know probably more MFAs um who wish they had a two book deal at Random House um <laughs> uh, than you can throw a stick at uh, so I'm just curious what do you think it would have given you maybe it's just the grass is greener but yeah. I, I, I maybe less than an MFA is I wish I would have been more um, thoughtful about my process in terms of getting an education but I actually feel much better now knowing that everybody else did the same thing and just <laughs> kind of landed someplace because I always yeah. thought you know I was a stupid one that didn't figure out that I should have right. you know known these things um I don't know. I think I've I've wondered if I haven't missed something, you know, and it just maybe it's just like I said the grass is greener, but it feels like I've I've wondered it. And I like school, you know, so there's always that, you know, why didn't I continue and I I wish I would have gotten on a path of of creative writing sooner rather than later, but I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for setting personal goals and meeting them. Um, I don't have an MFA. I, I'm impressed by people that do because I know the work that goes into it. Not, I don't necessarily think they're better writers than I am. Um, but, but I take great pride in the fact that I hold a Ph.D. in economics. Um, does it make me a good economist? No, I wasn't. A, I, I was a pedestrian economist. I got to be honest with you. We paid the bills, but um, getting an MFA isn't going to make you a great writer either. But um, but if it's a goal you set and you meet it, you certainly get a sense of gratification from it, and and I think you get a sense of freedom that that. You know, I have done at least part of what I need to do. I've I've work towards stuffing that toolbox and let's see where we go from here so that that's a take from the outside you you want to hear about numbers yeah. all right so i was talking to um, my dissertation director a couple months ago and he was like you wouldn't believe it how this works are people interested in going and getting a phd anyone in here Never mind. No. Okay. Um, but here's how competitive it is. So when I, when I applied to Florida State, and this is a Ph.D. program, I think they get less applications than MFA programs. Um, I think there were 380 applications, he said, the year that I got in. He gets 890 now with six slots. Wow. Six slots for, 
fiction, six slots for, PA, or six slots for poetry. Um, so there's huge numbers. I mean, there are, so I, I would, you got to apply to a bunch of places. Uh, I would hope that it's learning with people that you really like or that you admire. But here's the other thing is that I think with PhD, MFA, even MA programs in creative writing, it's about the people who get into with you. So it's about, I learned as much from my peers as I did from the professors. And it was about being around people that could really do some incredible stuff with fiction and poetry. Um, so I think, I think it, it has an immense amount of value it just, it's just something that you have to think about as far as what is the cost ultimately going to be for you. And it sounds like, I know I didn't think about that, but it sounds like so, that a lot of us didn't, and maybe that's something we would have changed. But I think that you get, you're, in, you're among people who are brilliant writers, and what better place on the planet to be than in that, in that room? And I think you get that here at Lighthouse as well. <laughs> um... <laughs> But anyway, but so, so essentially, what you're saying is yeah. when you're paying for an MFA, you're paying for someone to select a highly competent group of writers or potential writers for you to kind of mash around with. I think that's what happens. Yeah, and you get great professors, and you get some great writers who are not good professors. That's true. So um, I'm not going to name names, but there were a couple of big names there who I just didn't learn. Hard. I, I remember thinking, wow, that was a big letdown, <laughs> taking a class with that person. However, at the same time, the, because the other students were also uh, not loving it, We'd go out and drink and talk about writing all night, and then we'd go home and write, and I think that that might have been equally, you know. Always drink, always write. Seth, what do you attribute the rise in people applying these programs? Oh, boy, I don't know. You know, it's doubled in a The economy is probably a big part of it, I would think. Yeah. People that are... Are maybe there's more people that don't have a, a a good sense of what they're going to do, and it just makes sense to maybe I like to write. I'm going to go get a MFA, and because there are a ton of them now, I mean I think they've doubled in the last 40 years, mm-hmm. tripled maybe. I don't know. Um, so I I think there are three main things you get when you when you go get an MFA aside from the degree. Um, the first is community, which we've all been hammering. Um, it's really, really important. That's why you're here, is because you want community. But just meeting those friends that you can continue to have for years who are like-minded and you can push each other and go out and drink and talk about writing and inspire each other and compete with each other, that is just really, really important. Um, and that that is really the the major thing that I took away from getting an MFA and most people I know who have an MFA, that's what they feel is like, that's really the thing that made it worth it. Um, Two, mentorship, which is not the same because it's not your peers. It's, you know, meeting somebody older that you respect, a a very established, well-published poet who, or fiction writer, novelist, memoirist, whatever, that person who um, sees something in you and tries to guide you. And their opinion is always going to mean something a little bit different than, a friend or a peer. Um, and it's 
that's actually even harder to find. You might be able to find community on your own if you're if you have a lot of get up and go and um, you're good at making friends. <laughs> but mentorship is a little bit harder, um, and that can be really key. The third thing is just time. Just like you're literally buying time. Just saying, I'm going to take two or three years out of my life and focus on nothing but writing. And it's not just going to be the thing that I do on Saturday mornings or the thing that I do after work when I'm exhausted, if I can find the time, you know, and the kids are in bed. You don't have to steal time. That's It's just, you're just focusing on writing. And that's probably the only time in your life you're ever going to be able to do that, unless you're independently wealthy. And I don't <laughs> presume to know your finances. But um, the other thing I want to say is just, it's not necessary that you pay for an MFA. Like there are programs that offer funding. You just have to do the research and apply to those schools. Um, And you might not get into one the first year you apply, but if you really want to get an MFA and you don't want to go into 30 or 40 or $50,000 worth of debt, you can go to a program that will actually pay you a stipend, but you know, you're going to have to do your research and maybe wait for your time. So is 20, 30, 40, 50 about the debt that people can expect if they don't get one of the 15 national spots um, that are fully funded? Uh, just out of those of you who know, um, does anybody know? Does anybody out there know? <laughs> It's, yeah, yeah there are scholarships there are uh, as Elisa was saying um, but a graduate assistantship pays anywhere I think the max is maybe seventeen thousand and the average is probably fourteen thousand a year so and oh, and they you don't have to pay for your your uh, tuition, which is great but Try living on fifteen thousand a year. You know, <laughs> might be might be a little bit difficult. So you gotta you gotta have a plan. I think um, these days. Yeah, yeah. Go cheap. You know, go go to school in uh, Lincoln, where where rent is cheap and. They actually have a very good uh, faculty there. No, they have a great yeah. faculty there. Um, Kwame Dawes is there. Yeah, Dawes is there. Um, Who? Uh, Kwame Dawes is there. Um. Anyway, I'm just taking the microphone from people. Do others? Okay. Um, other questions? Yes. Um, maybe this is just a reality check for me, but you had a two-book Random House deal, and you're going back to your day job. So there's no, it seems like there's just not a lot of money to be made unless you write a book that's wildly popular or... And yeah, and she did two book deal and a movie deal and a movie deal. Yeah, and I was gonna say. Wild, and she had um. <laughs> and you had a cameo in your movie. Yeah, well, I didn't get paid for that. Um, oh, man. I know. Killing all the dreams. And there's no Emmy for you know, ec- walk walk. extra <laughs> in a scene, which my husband called it head acting. What, what I did was head acting, but anyway, um, yeah, it's it's funny. I took a class. I did took a class at the uh, Iowa Writers Program in the summer, and the woman that I took the class with was talk was was very open about the money that she was getting, and she said that this was when was this like 
2006-ish, so it was before publishing had crashed. And she had books that weren't like, you know, New York Times bestseller books, and she was getting a two-book, $200,000 deal. And she says this, and she also teaches there, and, you know, and I'm thinking – Man, if you had two hundred, why? Why you quit your job and and all this stuff, and you don't realize that for one, it's a two book deal um, is probably over the course of four years, and then you know if you don't earn out, you don't get any more money, and if you don't earn out, you don't get another. I mean, it's really it does it always. Writers, for the most of you, are very unique. Most of the writers I know, numbers, math. You know, don't so you flash dollar signs, you know, and I'm like, woo! But the reality is that it just isn't a lot of, um, no, it's not enough, it's really not enough to live off of. And I've, I've been really lucky and been successful and happy. And um, one of the things that I've learned from a lot of my writer friends is that advances have dropped a lot, you know, and the advance I got, I don't expect to get again. Um, but I don't also want to discourage you because one of the other things that's kind of weird about publishing is that a first book often has a better shot at getting a publisher's attention and interest and they can kind of fold themselves into having that sort of magical thinking that, ooh, this is going to be the one. And it's easier to do that without a sales track behind you where they can see, eh, it's going to be real hard to make this the one because we've tried with you a few times and it hasn't been the one. But if you're new and you're a bright, shiny new thing, they can go, ooh, you know, and get kind of psyched. And so, um, you know, you might be one of the ones that, makes a fortune there there are there they're out there but um it's and i keep having the experience like one of the cool things about what i've gone through is that i meet a lot of other writers who are who are well published and you know still are getting hardcover book deals and stuff like that and i keep i keep having the expectation that oh my god this is going to be the one where you know she stops talking to me because she's going to be like you know making a fortune and and it just it just doesn't happen even though it's new york times bestseller and you know yada yada it's just not unless you really break out in a major way it's just not financially what people think it is including my own family yeah, I'll just I'll I'll echo I'll echo that. The um you know the the hard fact is that um you know a couple hundred thousand books are published each year. Average sales are well under 500 copies. Um so you can imagine what kind of advance to expect when a publisher is using that as a business model. Um the uh uh uh, years ago, I heard heard Vonnegut uh, when he was in town giving a little talk, and and uh, he's a he's a big or was a big large man with an ego to match. And he looked out at the crowd, and there must have been two hundred people there. And he said, "You people write what you want to write because you love it. Because and then he pointed to himself. There are maybe two hundred people in the world like me, and um, he could back it up. And he and and he's true. I mean." Uh, he made was one of the few people that made a living writing without having to work, you know, a day job. Um, so, 
in a way, that's a little bit liberating. I mean, because you, you write your book, and it is a bestseller, which, again, doesn't necessarily mean a lot. Paul Harding, before he his <clears throat> tinkers, won the Pulitzer, had sold <clears throat> in over a year. It sold less than 15,000 copies. Um, and he was considered kind of a phenom. Um, but like I say, in a way, it kind of liberates you to write what you want to write. And then if something happens, it happens. And that's what, it's like winning the lottery. But, boy, don't take it to the bank. <laughs> don't spend it before you got it. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, I'll just quickly. I think I speak for a tattoo, and I can say we're poets, so we never had any illusion uh, that I was ever going to make any money. So that was lucky for us. <laughs> we always knew we were going to have to have a day job. And so if the day job is teaching, um, which is really kind of the promise of the MFA, besides, I think, the illusion that you're going to get well-connected and John Irving's going to say, I would love to blurb your book. And, you know, all the things you were talking about mentors. And it's like, it takes a lot of effort, even if you are in an MFA program with your idol, to get them to then compromise their own writing time to take you on as as their mentee, right? So even if you've kind of wrestled up um, John Russo or Richard Russo, I mean, I know a guy named John Russo, and he would he would blurb your book. He, might blurb. he actually would. And Richard Russo seems to be blurbing a lot. Yeah. So if you if you kind of put together this package, after the hundred grand is spread out over five years, that is the poverty level, mm-hmm. right? Um, so then teaching becomes the thing, right? And as the program director at Lighthouse, I have to tell you, I get dozens of resumes um, a week, even sometimes, you know, usually during right after everybody's heard they didn't get hired. I get a bunch of them. Um, I get some just randomly. And they've moved from being just MFAs to MFA PhDs who are looking for jobs at Lighthouse, which is not a place to go for a career. It's a place to go for one part of many to put together to make a, a life. So just just curious about what if, what if your energy for teaching um, runs out? What do you do once you've made that commitment? Pharmaceutical sale. <laughs> Why did you leave that? <laughs> I know. Seriously, I mean, you, you work more than anybody I know, so. Um, I don't know. Uh, here's the, the, the high and mighty sort of response to that, is that if you love teaching, you never run out of energy for it, right? But as I said before, you kind of might run out of the energy for the other things that you love, which is the writing. And so... For me, it's always been that that struggle to be a, the best teacher I can be and, and not fall into that trap of, which I see some teachers doing, which is they start expecting less of their students mm-hmm. because it expect, then they can expect less of themselves and they can not grade all the time and do all those things. So, uh, But I will say on a, a side note, here's, here's the thing is that I was I'm in I'm I'm looking for a job as a tenure track professor right now and um most of the jobs if you're looking for a tenure track job you got to have a book 
and you gotta have and you gotta have a PhD or you gotta have an MFA and two books, and it's pretty much national. I mean, um, I have an uh, interview with Fitchburg State University. <laughs> it's it's an off Ivy League school. Um, which it would be, it, I, I'm sure it'd be a great job. But it's you know um, with, I think my CV is okay, but I only had two interviews this year, and there were sixty jobs that I that I qualified for. So it's a tough road. It's it is a tough road. I would never tell anybody to not do it if they if they love it if they if they really want to be a, te- a teacher. Uh, but there's also a million other jobs where you co- you can teach um, with lesser degrees. So I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to talk about right now because I'm so broken. <laughs> I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> you could guess. Yes. Seth is going to be passing the hat. Yes. <laughs> oh, I want to get in on that. Yeah. Was there a question in the back? Back there. I feel like I'm talking a lot. Um, well, through Lighthouse, someone, uh, um, Karen Lauza, contacted me and wanted me to go out to Lyman Correctional Facility and teach some courses uh, at, for a literacy program. And I've been, I was kind of stunned by how that would affect me and how much I would enjoy it. So uh, without going too far into detail, it's basically for some very hardened tough criminals out there it's a it's almost a level five uh, uh facility they're trying to bump it so uh for instance i had a one of the kids i mean they're kids too uh who um uh, basically had been in the room when his friend killed his mother and is doing a life sentence. So I've had a lot of really kind of cool experiences uh, running into these uh, running into these in- inmates through that program. But um, for me, I don't have time to chase down those those opportunities. But I think Lighthouse more than any none of the other stuff has led me to anything like that. Lighthouse was a place that that took me in that direction. I would never have thought that I would go out and actually teach workshops out there. So. I'll just, yeah, just real quickly plug another. Again, through Lighthouse has a great outreach program to the schools, and I've had the privilege of going out a couple times, uh, once to a high school and once to a middle school, and those programs are really well received, working with our youth coordinator here. Those of you who, to some extent, regret not getting an MFA when you were younger, what keeps you from getting one now? Money. Well, but we've just been, I mean, when you're, I mean, the idea is that you're making a, what, an investment? 
Money. <laughs> <laughs> money and, and a husband who, you know, is like looking at the clock right now because I said I'd be home at 9 and, right. you know, or 9.30. It just doesn't fit anymore. Yeah, life life kind of tends to anchor in place after a while. Although, I hear a lot of good things about low res programs where um, you take usually a couple periods during the year and ten day increments and and go on campus and then the rest of the semester you work from home and, and correspond with your professors and mentors through email and um, that would be. Um, um, I think a viable alternative to look into to people who are currently, you know, involved in life and can't just <laughs> drop everything. I have to say those uh, usually aren't funded. Those yeah. are no, and those usually are not. Yeah, yeah. So there's still the cost. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm of I'm because I'm older. Looking back on it, I worried about the cost at the time because I came out of graduate school with about 40000 in debt um, and paid it off till I was paying it until I was 40. Looking back on it, I wouldn't have traded the experience. It was worth every penny of it to me. Um, I might have, if I knew now, then what I know now, maybe the course would have been different. I might have been in a writing program rather than economics, but I still take enormous satisfaction in having done it um, and I probably don't pursue an MA or an M MFA now just because, um, for me, it's tick-tock. I, I have to set priorities, and now my priorities are writing as much as I can, as fast as I can. And he has a hardcover book coming out this summer, Crossing Purgatory, that Lori read and said was the best book she read lately. Does she read a lot? <laughs> 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 Where were you when I needed you? <laughs> There's a question over here. Um, do you think that your chances of getting published are better if you do an MFA program? Uh, I, yeah, I actually, I think yes, but indirectly. Not because you have an MFA, but because of who you meet. Um, because you're more likely to make some connection. Or someone's going to say, oh, hey, I'm starting up a magazine. Or you should submit to this magazine that I already helped edit for. I like your work. It's something like that. Like the first few things that you get published, I think more often than not, are through some kind of connection, even if it's a soft or indirect connection. And it's easier to make those if um, you have a community. And you know, if you form that community through some other means than an MFA, great. But... Um, I know that my first published poem was through friends of mine that edited the university magazine at Emerson. Um, and I felt like once I had one poem published, like at least I could put that on my cover letter, you know, and it's just, you kind of like bootstrap from there. Um, I don't think just saying I have an MFA is going to get you published necessarily, but. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of agree. I, I think it might give you, in some cases, a, a initial entrance into maybe the lit, uh, some of the s smaller lit magazines uh, to start build a resume. But I've never personally talked to an editor or a publisher for a 
major journal or for certainly not for a for-profit publication that cares anything other than about what's on the page? I think it could be part of what is appealing to a publisher, but even more so than that is uh, how many books they think you can sell. And having an MFA doesn't really mean you can sell a lot of books. Um, if you have a blog that has a lot of readers, they're going to be way more excited about that. I don't have an answer to that question. <laughs> I don't think it necessarily helps, though. Or is it doesn't hurt, probably. in the back there. <laughs> oh. Okay. oh, is that? But, Okay. <laughs> That's you. So, just ter- in terms of your education, if there was one most important lesson that you learned um, when you were being taught as a writer, um, what was that, and what was the situation around that? I'll go first. Okay. Because I have a really good one that happened in a lighthouse workshop. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> And it and it was a really good lesson because it's not something that I expected. And I and I want to say this in a way that is is nice and respectful. The person who taught it to me was a fellow classmate who was not a good writer, very not very not a very good writer. And they're often the best teachers. And. Exactly. And I was one of those people in the workshop that could bring pages that everybody else, and even Bill, you know, Henderson, would get kind of caught up in the language is beautiful and, oh, I can smell the food cooking and blah, 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 blah. And this one person would say, what, nothing happens, you know, nothing happens, nothing happens. And I wanted to, like, punch the person <laughs> but it turns out this person was actually right I, I, so I learned from that experience about moving my scenes forward that at the beginning something has to change by the end and you know even just a little bit in a scene that th- this particular scene that obviously I hold a grudge about is um, you know the, the, the mother in the story is nervous because the daughter is coming to dinner and she's cooking and at the beginning she's cooking and she's nervous and at the end she's cooking and she's nervous and you know it's like well there could be some, some progression and I learned that from somebody who I did not expect to learn it from and so that's part of the value of workshopping I think is that it's um, not just the instructor but it's the people in the class Uh, for me, I think it was more about the study was about learning how to read as a writer. For me, uh, you know, I'd always read for uh, just personal satisfaction and entertainment or whatever. And then I think that the masters, I, I think I actually learned more about being a teacher and, and being a, a writer probably in my master's degree. I, I didn't mention that, but um, not an MFA, even though. We said it Everybody would love it. <laughs> yeah. um, and so for me, it was just paying careful attention to what writers do more than anything. And I hadn't done that before, and nobody had instructed me on that that's a skill. And so I remember specifically reading uh, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried and reading um, How to Tell a True War Story, which I'd read before and never thought of it as how instructive it was. And so I started imagining that you know, how he put that together. 
And so uh, for me, it was really just about th- that seems so simple, but I think that was really where it clicked for me and where it changed for me. Uh, any have anybody else? I have kind of a cheat answer. Um, I I felt that getting MFA was a little bit kind of like your first relationship where you're like learning how to be in a relationship, but you can't actually apply that knowledge forward until you break up and meet somebody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I felt like I, I don't, I can't remember like one single thing that I learned in my MFA that was important, except I know that like afterwards and, and, like, a little bit afterwards. Like, I remember there were, like, six months where I couldn't write at all. Or I would try to write, but it was horrible. Because um, I was just so burnt out from meeting deadlines and things. And then, like, all of a sudden, it was like I leveled up. Like, <laughs> like six months or a year after my MFA program, like, when I was working, um, I was just like, whoa. All of a sudden, I'm a way better writer and, like, writing totally different stuff. Like, just not even the same kind of things that I was working on when I was in my MFA. Um, but I still feel like I had to go through that to get there. And so, the, like, one thing I learned is that you, the book that you write in your MFA program, like your thesis, um, is probably not going to be your first book. And it certainly wasn't mine. My, my first book had maybe two or three poems from the book-length thesis that I produced, which I still, I still think those poems are pretty good, but it just wasn't my first book. Um, yeah, so that's my answer. I guess I guess the one thing I learned was that, uh, and it's kind of like Coraline says, um, an extension of that, uh, no one, no reader really cares that you spent a year and a half on this story. <laughs> if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and you got to let it go or you have to make it work. And for me, that usually means it doesn't matter if I put together a couple of pretty sentences if nothing happens. <laughs> Reading is entertainment to people, and sometimes they want a roller coaster ride, and sometimes they want something deep like a really New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle. But at some level, it's entertainment, and it's our jobs to provide that. Um, you know, whether it's you know Moby Dick or whatever shade of gray is going around. <laughs> Um, how much time do we have? How much time do you want? Um, so maybe we have time for one or two more questions. Anybody? Question. Okay, great. Uh, when you were in your MFA programs, well, when one of you was in your MFA program, uh, I was in one too. So you. Can... Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, this is a question for Elisa and Adrian. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people here are not just out of grad school, but a lot of us are a bit older. And the question is, how well would someone who wasn't just out of um, undergrad integrate into the culture of such a program? Well, I, I, I will say that um, when I was in graduate school, there was the older woman. <laughs> and um, we would always say to each other, have you had a class with the woman? And um, <clears throat> she was probably 30 or 30. <laughs> 35. It's like, I have a class with the woman. She's really nice. You know, she's got like seven kids or something, but she, and she probably had two, you know, and um, so I think it, things have evolved since then, and especially uh, the, the low res programs um, have evolved and are more designed for people 
Um, especially, I got to say, of affluence who, who are, you know, maybe they've been computer scientists for 20 years and they've got bank and, um, and they can afford the 30 or 40,000 a year to go to them. Um, so I think those programs are a lot more diverse right now than, than the MFA programs that are, you know, typical. And even, I think, typical MFA programs probably have some diversity. I don't know what it means about our culture that so many people feel kind of the mandate and the, the ability to pursue art as a, as a career. We haven't really talked about that. But I do think there's kind of this feeling, and maybe it's like right before Rome fell. Um, we're like, I, I want to express myself, and damn it, you know, I want to go make a career out of it. But it's huge. I mean, it's a huge industry, the creative writing industry. And, and Lighthouse is a part of that. We're the nonprofit part of it. But... But there's a there's a mandate. There's a cultural mandate for us to exist. And you look out at academia, which people debate whether that's a happy marriage or not between art and academics. Um, and we haven't really talked about that either. But I, I think um, the idea that because I'm I'm driven to write that I might pursue a career path is is a very American idea. People used to make fun of us, I think, in, in England and and elsewhere before they started doing it, too. And they're like, shit, we can make some money. Um, so the idea that the writers themselves are going to create this economy for other writers to then pursue their writing, I think, is an American thing. Um, maybe that's a controversial thing to point out or put out there, but... I guess I just did. Um, and, and, and so you're starting to see people of all ages, I think, doing it. Um, there's an appeal and there's a feeling that I can do this. I, I can dedicate my, my time and energy to what my heart wants and, and come out the other side. So, I mean, that's the feeling I have. And then we should get to that. I was just going to say, I don't think it's just creative writing. I think I think one of the things that is something that has changed in our culture is that we don't have the ageist expectation that, you know, life stops at Mm -hmm. some certain age. You've picked one career and that's all you're supposed to do. Now people have, you know, multiple careers, they have multiple paths, and it it just seems more normal to to hear somebody saying, yeah, I'm 40 and I'm going back to school and not be like, ew, that just seems like normal now. And when I was in Emerson, it was probably half and half people who were coming straight out of undergrad and people who had, you know, been in the workforce or went to some other kind of graduate school and changed their minds or whatever. But people who were had been out of college for five, 10, 15 years. Um, So I mean, I was one of the younger people in the program when I was there. certainly wasn't the case where it was like, eh, he's 30. (laughs) That's weird. It wasn't wasn't like that at all. Um, Yeah, it was just, you know, it was a mixed bag. And I would would imagine, like, everyone saying that that is more true now um, than it was then even 10 years ago or whenever. Other thoughts, questions, controversies? Any... 
Anyone? Did you come here and feel like you got questions answered that you had? Yeah. Or do you, yeah? Okay, cool. Because I think there's still, is there a cupcake or two upstairs? And, oh my God, I've never gotten any of the cupcakes. Um, thank you to this wonderful panel. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.